Amen. Come on now, church. Y'all have got to be awake after that. Amen. If you would, grab your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 24 as you remain standing for just a moment. Luke chapter 24. And no, my name is not Johnny Cash. April says my voice sounded better this morning. That means y'all didn't want to hear it yesterday. Um, I just got to say this, you know, it's, it's one thing to be able to worship uh, with your people. Uh, worship the risen Lord on Resurrection Sunday. But looking up on this stage and seeing so many young people, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to include Dion in that, youngish, uh, that have meant so much to me and my family uh, since we got here. It really is just a powerful, moving time of worship. Um, I'm going to be honest with you, we're, we're not going to really exegete the text this morning, so I'm already out of my comfort zone. But I want to talk to you about the response to the resurrection. And so what I want to do is I want to read the resurrection story and I'm going to let you sit down and rest for a second, but I want you to not, not rest your brains. I want you to lean in because this is an important thing we're going to talk about today, our response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 24, Luke records these words, beginning of verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. Now, they had prepared spices to, to do what? To put on a dead body. To, to anoint the body, to keep the smell down. It was, a, it was a ritual that they did. And they found a stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and they bowed to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? The two men asked, he is not here, but he has risen. And let me just add a caveat for just clarification this morning. He still is risen. You see, we talked about Lazarus last week, and Lazarus was risen, but he would die again. Not so with King Jesus. He's alive forevermore, Amen. It says, remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee, saying it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Much like probably some of you. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. Uh, one more little caveat. Uh, the stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, but so we could see in and see that the tomb was empty. So he went away amazed at what had happened. Father God, today, I pray for your Holy Spirit to move in this place, to speak through your word, to speak to our hearts. Lord God, you're the king of the universe, and you demand our response to the resurrection. We pray that we would give you that today in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, the story of the resurrection 
Resurrection Sunday is found in all four of the Gospels. Mark 28, I'm sorry, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20 and 21. This past Sunday, I told you, was Palm Sunday, and that was the Sunday that Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem uh, to shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He rode in on a donkey, just as the prophet Zechariah had foretold. They were laying down palm branches and their clothes, so he would ride in as a king deserves to come into the royal city. A short five days later, they would crucify the same man that they celebrated that day. But then on that resurrection Sunday, this account we read from Luke 24 happened. He had, ri- he had risen from the grave. Um, 25 total chapters in, in the four Gospels, which is about 28%. So think about this. Nearly a third of the Gospels is devoted to this one week in the life of Jesus. Pretty important week, amen? I mean, if you live 30-something years and you do all these miracles and healings and raising people from the dead and casting out demons, walking on water, multiplying bread and fish to feed thousands, uh, challenging the religious structure of the time, that's a pretty full life, and yet we see nearly 30% of the chapters in the four Gospels devoted to just one week. And I think the importance of that is seen in a quote from Dr. Adrian Rogers, He said, we ought to be living as if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming back this afternoon. Now here's a question for those of you who profess faith in Christ. Are you living that way? Are you living in a way that people would think, by the way you live, that Jesus died yesterday, rose today, and is returning tomorrow? Before we begin to talk about the, the four points, I have four things that the resurrection of Jesus means for us. And then I'm going to ask you to respond to that. I'm going to ask you to give a response to the resurrection. So before we, we, I can't really ask you for a response to something that may be still in, in the, the arena of debate for you. <coughs> Excuse me. So here's what I'm, I'm going to, here, here's my position statement before we begin. The resurrection of Jesus, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is irrefutable. This is not a debatable fact. This is not a a hypothesis or a theory. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact. It's irrefutable. It's inarguable. It's historical. Now, you may say, well, I don't believe that. History books say otherwise. Well, the Bible itself is a history book. (coughs) It is the only inspired book of history, but it is a book of history, of all the weeks for your voice to go out, Easter week. Here's the, I I could give you a lot of facts, I could give you a lot of factoids, I could talk to you a lot about uh, what I believe and things that I've studied, but I'm going to give you one, I'm going to try to really talk about this one fact. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read about the Apostle Paul sharing about Jesus, and he shares about the resurrection. And he says that Jesus rose from the grave, and he appeared to the women and the apostles, and he even says that he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. But then he makes this statement. He says, and this is in a, a very short window of time after the resurrection, historically speaking. Most of the time when you see uh, things that happen in history documented, they're 250 years after the event, or more. 
this event had happened, and this is some 90 years after the resurrection when, when Paul is writing this letter. And here's what he says. He says he appeared to all these other people, and he says he appeared to over 500 men after his resurrection. And he doesn't stop there. He says many of whom are still alive. Now, here's, here's why I tell you that the resurrection is a fact. If it were not a fact, these people would have stopped the movement of Jesus Christ. If Paul wrote this letter to this church in Corinth, which was a, a metropolitan city, a big city, if he wrote this letter and he says, I'm telling you he's alive, I'm telling you he rose from the grave because these women saw it, the apostles saw it, I saw him on the road to Damascus when he appeared to me, but over 500 men saw it and some of them are still alive. If that were not the case, number one, he would not have added that little, that little throw in, some of them are still alive. Because here's what he could have said. Jesus appeared to a whole bunch of people. And they said, well, prove it. Show me one of them. He said, oh, well, they're all dead. You know, conveniently, <laughs> when asked to defend it, he said, oh, well, they're all, they're all dead. You know, I mean, you know, old Fred got sick and uh, Earl got run over by his ox. And, you know, I mean, he could have had all these stories. He could have given you all these excuses why these men were dead so you couldn't ask them. If we were going to make up a lie, that's how we would do it, right? If we were going to make up a lie in modern times, we wouldn't say all this stuff happened and you can go ask some of them because some of them are still alive. And obviously in this region, there might have been some men even in the congregation. There might have been some men in the city who had witnessed the risen Christ. And so for Paul to make this statement tells us clearly that the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact. And it can't be refuted. It can't be ignored. It must be responded to. Paul would not have said it, and if it were not true, they would have found out, and they would have outed him as a liar, and they would have disgraced the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, if you will just trust me on that premise, then we can proceed forward. We can talk about the four things the resurrection does for us, and then we can talk about our response. The first thing the resurrection does is that it provides our regeneration. Now, I'm going to give you four kind of Bible words, but I'm going to give you good definitions on all of them so you don't have to worry about it. It provides our regeneration. Regeneration, according to the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, is an inner cleansing and renewal of the human nature by the Holy Spirit. By the way, that's something only the Holy Spirit can do, renewing your inner nature. <clears throat> Changing you from the inside out is something that only the Holy Spirit of God can do. I'm going to drink more water during this sermon than I've drunk in two years as your pastor. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Now, it says the old is past and all things are become new. When it says you're a new creature, we talked to Jude about this just before the baptism. When it says you're a new creature, that means you are something that has never existed before. In the original language, the Greek, if you study those words, it's not that you're a U 2.0, you are a new you, you're a different you. When I came to faith in Christ, I was nearly 26 years old. I had a drug problem when I was a kid. Um, my mom drugged me to church every time the doors were open. I was the only boy in seventh grade in WMUs. I mean, I'm telling you, I was Becky, I was there. If the doors were open, I was there almost as much as the pews were. And yet, I did not come to faith in Christ. I had a religious experience, but I did not come to faith in Christ. How do I know that? Because I had lived like the devil from the time I was a teenager until I was nearly 26 years old. In, in, in August, and I would turn 26 in September, 
I came to the realization sitting in a church service at Westside Baptist Church in Florella that I was not a saved person who had made some mistakes and had some stumbles because I had done it without any conviction. And that day, the Holy Spirit of God was convicting me that I was lost. And so I knelt down on my knees at a little altar, a little country church, and I prayed and I said, Lord Jesus, if you will forgive me, if you will save me, you'll cleanse me and take me back, I will do whatever you ask me to do for the rest of my life. And at that moment... I was regenerated, uh, an act, an inner cleansing of the Holy Spirit of my nature. I was made into a new creation, a brand new thing that had never existed. 1 Peter 1.3 puts it this way. It says, God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember when Jesus was talking to one of the religious people and he says, uh, you cannot see eternal life unless you be born again. And he's like, how can a, how can a grown man be born again. My mom is not going to be happy about that. <laughs> like I've, I've looked at the biology of it, and mama's going to be like, I got bad news for you. That ain't happening. And so Jesus is talking about this regeneration, this making new from the inside out, not, not an outward change. Listen, you can change on the outside, and you can fool a few people, but you can never fool God. I'm living proof of that. I tried that for a long time. It, when, I, when I made my profession of faith, I guarantee you, April will tell you, <clears throat> it shocked everybody in that building. Because, I, man, I was good. I, I was a good actor. I was a good role player. I could, I could act a part on Sunday. You didn't want to catch me on Friday night or Saturday night or, or off, you know, during the week. But if you just saw me on Sunday morning, man, I dressed the part. I looked the part. I could, I could, I could you know, talk the talk. But I was lost. Only through the working of the Holy Spirit, could I be regenerated? And that's something that the resurrection provides for us. Paul says this in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. We talked about this a little bit in one of the songs. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You see, every person who comes to faith in Christ is a resurrection. Uh, me and April have talked about this before, that her testimony is very different from mine. My testimony includes... Uh, you know, drug use and alcohol and, and all kind of just, you know, worldly living. I think the King James would say about my life that I had riotously lived. But see, April was a good girl. She was, uh, she was a, 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 a godly young lady, and she never, she never did run off and in, in, in kind of in the bushes and, and do all the terrible stuff that I did. She got saved at a younger age than I did. But see, her testimony is not weaker than mine. And mine is not stronger than hers. Both of our testimonies are a testimony of resurrection. We were raised from the dead because the Bible says that both of us, no matter how little or much we had sinned, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we were made alive through Christ Jesus. And by the way, he's the only one that can make you alive. I can make you a church member, but that won't get you into heaven. We can make you a minister. That won't get you into heaven. We can make you a deacon and get you a name tag, and that will not get you into heaven. Only the blood of Jesus Christ. Man, thank you, Jesus, for the blood. Amen? Paul, in his letter to Titus, says this in Titus 3, 5. He saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So it provides our regeneration. Not only does it do that, but it also ensures our justification. His resurrection ensures our justification. Uh, Grant, all I could think about was I'm using a bunch of church words. 
And I'm going to give you definitions of all of them because it, it it's, kind of, it's kind of tough to think about some of these big words. All right, here's, here's the definition from Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible for justification. It's the act of God. Now, by the way, don't miss that. It ain't the act of you. It ain't the act of me. It ain't the act of Chris when he dunked his son. It is the act of God in bringing sinners into a new covenant relationship with himself through the forgiveness of sins. Your sins have to be forgiven, and they can only be forgiven by God. And you have to ask him for that forgiveness. And if you do that, then we can see in your life what we saw in the life of Abraham. And I think Paul does a great job of recording that and explaining it from an Old Testament to a New Testament point of view in Romans chapter 4, verses 22 through 25. I'm going to read this, and I'm going to skim a little bit, but I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. He says, and because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. I, I want to, <clears throat> I want to, y'all are shocked. I'm going to read one verse and stop. I want to get that. Because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. Here, here's what I want you to understand. You and I need to understand this. Abraham's faith didn't make him. God counted him. As righteous. Abraham's good acts, his good deeds, his good moral character, his moral fiber, the fact that he was born an American, by the way, he wasn't. The fact that he was born a Jew, he wasn't. The fact that he was born at all, nothing mattered. Nothing that Abraham brought to the, to the table mattered. It wasn't his ability, it wasn't because he could sing or he could preach or he could uh, fundraise or he could uh, you know, whatever. He, it wasn't anything that Abraham brought to the table. <clears throat> it was Abraham's faith. And because of his faith, God counted him as righteous. Verse 23, and when God counted him as righteous, listen to this, it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. See, he had Jews and Gentiles in this congregation. So he went to Abraham for the Jewish people to understand, but then he also went to the Gentiles by saying, but, but it wasn't just for Abraham's benefit that he was counted righteous. Because they need to understand this is a concept of, of anybody who comes and calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He says, for our benefit too. Assuring us that God will also count us as righteous. And listen, here's a big word with two letters. If. You see, God will count you as righteous but not just because you existed, not just because you're here, not because of your grandmother, your grandfather. Well, my granddaddy was a preacher. Good, if you come to faith in Christ, because otherwise your granddaddy's going to be real disappointed when he's in heaven and you never come to join him. Well, you don't understand. I've been to church my whole life. So are these chairs. They ain't going to heaven. You ain't going to see one of these chairs in heaven, and they're here all the time. God will count us as righteous if we believe in him. And who is he? He's the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. That's justification. You are justified when you repent of your sins and turn to Christ in faith and follow him. And that word justified, you can think of it as it's just as if I'd justified just as if I'd never sinned because all that you did is wiped away when I go to God and say hey God remember that thing that I repented of back in the day I want to repent about it again and he's like I'm sorry I don't know what you're talking about 
Because once it's forgiven, it's done. It's moved aside. It's set away. God forgives totally. He's not like your spouse. Neil, you sit very quiet. Jace, all y'all. He's not like your friend who forgave you and then five or ten years later, he's like, hey, remember that time you did so-and-so? He's not like your parent who forgives you and then every time you come back, they go, well, I would love to trust you, but... Just me? All right. He makes us right, forgives our sins, and then forgets about them. I saw on Twitter recently, because all the great theological conversations happen on Twitter, <clears throat> somebody tweeted out, and, it, this was, and he was being sincere. I, I looked at the thread, I read all the responses, I thought somewhere he would come back in there and say, ha ha, I was kidding, I'm really not that stupid. He didn't. Here's what he said. He said, would it really make a difference in the life of a Christian if the resurrection wasn't real? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Kind of a big deal. Because, see, if Christ hasn't been raised, I have no hope. If Christ hasn't been raised, I will be dead when I die, and I will never rise to live eternally. Paul answered the question, I think, maybe the guy should just read 1 Corinthians 15. This is later in the chapter when he, he tells them that over 500 men saw him and some are still alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So what am I saying? If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, you are still in your sins and you have no hope. Can I give you another juxtaposition of that but still true statement if you've never repented of your sins you the, the the resurrected christ means nothing to you if you've never repented of your sins you are still dead in your trespasses and sins and you are on your way to hell that's why this sunday matters that's why it demands a response from us because the resurrection of jesus is the most pivotal moment the most pivotal event in all of history Here's what Jonathan Edwards, the great evangelist, said. For if Christ were not risen, it would be evidence that God was not yet satisfied for our sins. Now listen, if that didn't send a shudder through your body when I read that, you didn't hear it. Let me read it again. If Christ were not risen, it would be evidence that God was not yet satisfied for our sins. Listen to me. If God were not yet satisfied with our sins, we would still need to be killing goats and bulls and turtle doves and, and observing all the feasts and making sure that we lived uh, sacrosanct, that we, that we didn't touch the foods that the Bible has said were unholy, that we, we would have to live completely uh, uh, sinless lives in order to reach God. How many of you believe today that you are able to live a completely sinless life? Good. We don't have to get mental health counselors to come and help you. Then he goes on to say this. Now the resurrection is God declaring his satisfaction. He thereby declared that it was enough. Christ was thereby released from his work. Christ as he was mediator is thereby justified. We're going to have a, a family meeting uh, next month in May toward the end. I think it's the 22nd. Grayson, is that right? 
and we're going to observe communion that night. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper uh, for, for all of us who were, you know, part of the faith family here. When we do that, we, we are doing that as a symbol, not as a methodology. We're symbolically showing that we're remembering the, the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus, but we're not. It doesn't change us. Taking communion does not heal the sin sickness of our heart. It's just a, 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 an observation that we do, a recollection that it gives us, because God has been satisfied by the finished work of Christ. Not only does it provide our regeneration and ensure our justification, but his resurrection brings our reconciliation. Reconciliation is the restoration of friendly relationships and of peace where before there had been hostility and alienation. Again, the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. You see, before there was hostility and alienation. You know why? Because we were enemies of God. We were enemies of God. Now think about that. That ought to, that ought to, make, uh, that ought to make your spine stiffen up a little bit. You were standing across the battlefield from uh, the holy God of the universe and you were taking up arms against him. Whew. Again, go back to 2 Corinthians 5. 17 says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past and all becomes new. <clears throat> Listen to what it says next. Everything is from God who reconciled us, is verse 18, reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, that's what I'm doing here today. See, you're out there now, and if you, if you don't know me, if you haven't been here, you think, man, that, that redneck's kind of hollering a lice. No wonder his voice is shot. He's yelling like a banshee. He must be mad at me. I'm not mad at you. I'm trying to get your attention. Because I'm trying to tell you that you need to be saved. If you don't know Christ, you are drowning in your sins and somebody is trying to get your attention. Hey, hey, come back to the shallow side. Come back in. You're, you're, you're walking toward a rattlesnake and I'm trying to get your attention. If you were about to drink poison, if you knew that this was poison, Ron, I hope to goodness that you would yell at me before I took a drink. I hope that you wouldn't sit there and go, oh, I hope you didn't drink that. Ooh, ooh I don't want to yell though, it's turkey. It wasn't poison. <clears throat> Good news. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That's why we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. I'm trying to shout to tell you that you need to be reconciled to a holy God. If I'm going to shout for a stupid football team, I ought to shout for reconciliation. I ought to shout to tell you that you're lost and undone without Christ. says he's committed the message of reconciliation to us and we are ambassadors for Christ. And this is our message. It says we plead, we plead, we, we pour ourselves out on Christ's behalf. And this is our message. Be reconciled to God. See, the resurrection brings our opportunity for reconciliation. We cannot be reconciled except for the fact that Christ went to the cross. Why? Because God is mean-spirited? No, because God is holy. And the only way a holy God could allow a terrible me into his presence is there had to be a perfect sacrifice. And since I wasn't perfect, I couldn't be the sacrifice. So Jesus came and he lived a life that I couldn't live. He died a death that I deserved. And he rose from a grave that should have been mine. 
That's why I can be reconciled to God. Romans 5, Paul does a great job of giving us this picture of this animosity we had between us and God and how he, he, he basically just put it away. Listen to this. Romans 5, 8 through 10. But God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And that leads us to the fourth and final thing. He provides our regeneration, ensures our justification, delivers our reconciliation. But here's the, the thing that it, it asks of us. The resurrection demands our sanctification. Sanctification, according to the Baptist Catechism, is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Now, <clears throat> this is a little confusing, so I'm going to try to give it to you like this. You are justified when you come to faith in Christ. We talked about that. Just as if I'd never sinned, my, my old life is gone, the new life has come, I'm a new creation in Christ, right? But you are also sanctified when that happens. Now, don't, don't mis, mix the words up. You are sanctified. That word means set apart. So when, when you came to faith in Christ, Michelle, God plucked you out of your sin and he set you apart for holiness. But then from that point, you have to continue in this method of being sanctified. It's sanctification is a process, not a one-time event. So you are justified when you come to faith in Christ. You can never be any more or less saved than when you put your faith in Christ, repent and turn from your sin and follow him. And then one day when you die or Christ returns, you will be glorified. You'll be given a glorified mind and a glorified body, thank goodness, because this is about shot. There's a lot of it, but it ain't worth much. I'm going to get a glorified body, I'm going to have a glorified mind, and I'm going to be in the presence of Jesus. Between now and then, I need to be moving and growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And that is the process of sanctification. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6, 6 through 12. I'm not going to read all of it, I'm going to skim it. He says, Our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. You see, Regeneration is an instant occurrence of birth, while sanctification is the continuous activity of growth. See, the problem with us is sometimes we say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to live like I want to. My buddy Stacy back at Southside used to say, people want to see how much hell they can have in them and still get into heaven. Can I just tell you this, <clears throat> and I try not to get emotional when I say this, I try not to be angry, try not to get my feelings, but don't you dare reduce my king to a lifesaver. Don't you dare reduce my king to a get-out-of-hell-free card. He is Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, the risen king of creation. He is to be worshipped. You cannot call on him as Savior if you don't surrender to him as Lord. Paul goes on to say this in verse 7. Since a person who has died is free from sin's claims. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Verse 11, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You cannot be saved. Growing in sanctification means that you've got to be dead to sin. If you're still in love with your sin, then you are not in love with Jesus because you can only serve one master. By the way, some of you say, well, I ain't serving no master. I'm free. Hey, let me tell you something, chief. You ain't got a choice as to whether or not you're a slave. Your only choice is to whom you are a slave. 
You can, you can, there are two options. You can be a slave to sin and self. You can be a narcissist and just be in love with yourself and do whatever your sin and flesh tells you to do. And by the way, that's easy on, on this side of heaven. That's the easier path on this side of heaven because you won't get a lot of pushback from your, from your flesh. You know why I look like me and I don't look like uh, Jacob over here, Mr. Bodybuilder? You know why I don't look like you, Jacob? Number one, I'm 30 years older than you are. That don't help me. That's not, that's not in my favor. But number two is my, I, I'm a pretty lenient guy when it comes to what I eat and how much I work out. I'm like, hey, I should work out today. And then my flesh says, he worked out before. It's been a minute. I need to go walking. I need, man, I really need to get out and move my, man, you went yesterday. Let's take a day off. How about a donut? See, I'm not a very good taskmaster for me. Listen to me, but look, look at the spiritual analogy. The same thing happens in my flesh. If I just let my flesh reign in my life, I'll do all kind of heinous stuff. See, my mind can start down that path, and I'm like, hang on, boss. Holy Spirit, would you do, help me out real quick? And the Holy Spirit comes in and convicts me of my sin and says, you can't live that way. And so I don't answer to my flesh. I answer to the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that we are the temple and the Spirit of God dwells within us. And so when the Spirit is dwelling in you, when you start to do something wrong, you get convicted and you go, thank you, Lord, I'm not doing that. You back away. That's why we can say we're dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And here's how he finishes that. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. I don't need to be with my spiritual life like I am with my physical life and let my body, my flesh, get away with what it wants to get away with. I have to let the Spirit reign and control my actions. 1 John 4.10 says this, Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. I heard that's a good King James word, propitiation. I heard it my whole life. And I was like, Are there, is there amateur propitiation? Like, I don't understand what, what is, I don't understand propitiation versus, like, you know, I, I don't understand that word. And so I would just ignore it, because <clears throat> that's what good, church kids do when you don't understand the word just go I don't know and then one day I came to Christ and I started studying the Bible and I'm like I need to figure out what that word means I looked it up and it was like whoo man what a word here's what propitiation means it means both the appeasing of God's wrath and being reconciled to God so in other words it's the punishment we deserve being taken on by Jesus and it's the debt that we owe being paid by the blood of the lamb see not only did he go to the cross that I deserve but he he paid that debt he took the punishment that should have been mine, and then he paid a debt that he didn't know that I couldn't pay. And through that, I am reconciled to God. Jesus did both of those things so we can have victory over our flesh and live lives that honor God, glorify God, and point others to God. So here's what I want to ask you again. Stop living like Jesus is a get-out-of-hell-free card and start living like you're going to stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ tomorrow. So we'll close with this. <clears throat> How will you respond to the resurrection? Again, the resurrection of Jesus is an irrefutable fact. It's documented. It's historical. And I can even tell you this much. There is a resurrection of Jesus or there would not have been a resurrection of Kevin. I would not be changed were it not for the risen Christ. John 10, Jesus says this in verses 17 and 18. He says, this is why the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. 
I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I've received this command from my Father. So here's my question. Jesus laid down his life for you. Will you not take up your cross for him? See, he says in Luke 9, 23, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That means we have to take up our cross. We have to live whatever, whatever obstacles God puts in front of us, whatever obstacles life puts in front of us, whatever obstacles our own flesh puts in front of us, we have to live for Jesus Christ. During the French Revolution, somebody said to Talleyrand, the bishop of Autun, this is what he said, the Christian religion, what is it? It would be easy to start a religion like that. And here's Talleyrand's response. He said, oh yeah, that'd be easy. One would only have to get crucified and rise again the third day. Dr. Paul Lee Tan, I think this is a great summation. He says, the empty tomb had a message for the disciples as it has for us. It says to science and philosophy, explain this event. It says to history, repeat this event. It says to time, blot out this event. And it says to faith, believe this event. See, what, what, what the resurrection does for us, provides our regeneration, ensures our justification, provides our reconciliation, demands our sanctification, that's all great. But you have to respond. You have to make a response to the resurrection of Jesus. Will you believe it or will you discard it? If you believe it, you can have eternal life and you can have abundant life between now and then. If you discard it, then you're choosing hell over the resurrected Jesus. And make no mistake, God doesn't send anyone to hell. You choose hell. Hell was not created for you. It was created for the devil and his demons. But you choose hell when you reject the lordship of Jesus Christ. Without his birth, we would have no hope for reconciliation with God. Without his sinless life, we would have no spotless lamb for the sacrifice that we so needed. Without his death, our sin debt would still be owned, owed. His sinless life would just be an impressive feat, and his birth would just be a heartwarming story of a young couple overcoming adversity to have a child. Without his resurrection, we would have no hope of victory over death. His life would be a footnote in history, and his death would just be the tragic murder of an innocent man. But, but, with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have all we need, and by placing our faith in him, we can have eternity in heaven. So what will you do today? <clears throat> How will your response be? If you're a professing believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, thank you for being here today. I celebrate with you the resurrection of our Lord. And I'm going to be honest with you. I know this is kind of like hunting over bait, fishing in a bucket. I know that Easter is a day when some people come to church that they never come any other time. And you may think, man, it'd be, it'd be kind of like cheating to take advantage of somebody who just came for the first time. Oh, no, friend, I don't believe that. You see, my dad was a priester. Uh, my whole life, he only went to church on Christmas and Easter. If then. He'd been raised by two godly parents, but he'd rejected and he'd walked away and he lived for himself. He's a very selfish man. Only when my dad found out that he was going to die. And by the way, you're, let me just give you a newsflash. You're going to die too. 
but his was more tangible. He had been an alcoholic, and he drank himself to death. His liver was shot. The doctor said, if you drink again, you'll be dead in six weeks. If you never drink again, you'll be dead in six months. That realization of his eternity hit my dad. And my dad confessed Christ, and he called me and said, what do I need to do next? I said, we need to get you baptized. We need to make your profession of faith public. So I baptized my dad two months before his funeral. So is it taking advantage to try to really hit you with the gospel when you come to church just once a year? I sure hope so. The resurrection of Jesus is an historical event. It's a factual reality. The only thing in doubt is how you're going to respond to it. Will you respond by turning your back on Jesus and, and accepting your punishment in hell rather than follow him? Or will you repent of your sins and come to faith in Christ and follow him all the days of your life? That's the question, and this is the time for you to have an immediate response. You have one opportunity to be instantly obedient to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. I said last week, just as he stood before the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth, today he stands before your tomb as the resurrected, risen Savior of humanity. He stands before your tomb, and he speaks into the death that you are living in and your sins and trespasses, and he's calling your name, and he's saying, come out of the grave. And step into this glorious life that I have for you. How will you answer it? I'm going to pray. And when I say amen, I want you, everybody to stand with me. And if you need to come to faith in Christ, you need to come up here and make a public profession of faith in Christ. Don't hesitate. Don't look around. Don't wait for anybody else. You move. As soon as I say amen, you move. This is your opportunity to come to know Christ and to make it public. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your blood. Father God, thank you that you raised our Jesus, our Savior, our Lord. You raised him from the dead. And now you've seated him at your right hand. God, my prayer is that today you would do that for somebody else, that you would resurrect another person today, that you would bring them from their sins and trespasses, which has led them into death, and you would deliver them into life. God, I can't do that. I can't persuade that. Only your spirit can do that. So, God, you draw and help them to be obedient. Give them the courage it takes to be obedient. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.